Well, amen and good morning. What an absolute joy to be back here with all of you and to see so many familiar faces as a lot of new ones. Kelly and I have been greatly encouraged reading through the emails, talking with Pastor Jacob about everything that God has been doing here at Grace Bible Church. It's truly a testament to God's faithfulness to those who seek to honor and glorify him. Even as imperfectly as we do that at times, we have much to praise him for. I bring greetings from the brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Bible Church, where I currently now pastor. We're a small gravel road country church in the beautiful hills of French Lake. And it's been an incredible and humbling experience to be able to preach every single Sunday for almost a year now. For those of you who don't know, my wife and I have four kids ranging from 14 to 6 years old. So when I started preaching, I remember having to lovingly kick them out of the house at times so I could sit in silence and prepare a sermon every week. But luckily, by God's grace, we were able to convert our beautiful furnace room into a half office where I can have all of my books and my computer and just a place to pray think, and prepare. And I say all of that because as I sit down there and pray and seek God's guidance and discernment every week to shepherd a people who are out in the world for 167 hours a week, and I get one measly little hour to prepare them to stand strong for 167 more hours against worldliness, debauchery, temptation, and sin that is desperately trying to disguise itself as acceptable, I often think, who am I? But then I realized all I do is try and vocalize what my own sinful heart needs to hear. So the weight of this calling at times, it seems unbearable. But God in his goodness gives us exactly what we need, not what we want, but what we need when we need it. And Psalm 29 is exactly what I needed in this season of life. And my prayer is that by the end of this message, some, if not all of you, will have a fresh sense of awe and amazement at the incredible God we serve. So if you have a Bible, please open them to Psalm 29. I'll pray and we'll get started this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we have much to praise you for today. Lord, we thank you for the ordinance of baptism, those six souls confessing their faith and allegiance to you. What an incredible display of seeing the word and theology come to life, to see it in action. Lord, what a joy that was. So, Father, as we examine Psalm 29 and we see your glory and who you are and how powerful you are compared to all of the other things that try to fill the place in our hearts where you should rightfully be. We pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds. I pray that you would remove the preacher from this message and have the people see only you. We love and praise you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a lot of us are old enough to remember 
or have some recollection of the tornado that ripped through Joplin, Missouri in May 22nd of 2011. It was easily classified as an EF5 with its maximum width reaching more than a mile wide and winds topping out at 200 miles an hour. The storm was so strong that it's reported that pavement and manhole covers were thrown around like frisbees. Vehicles, buses, and semis were destroyed beyond recognition. Trees were uprooted and snapped like toothpicks. The storm claimed 161 lives and in total injuring 1,100 plus people. The devastation was immense. And this is relevant because Psalm 29 describes the sheer power of God as far superior to that of a ferocious storm. Regarding this psalm, Charles Spurgeon says, quote, This psalm is meant to express the glory of God as heard in the pealing thunder. The voices march to the tune of thunderbolts, end quote. This psalm is unique in so many ways, but one of the most notable is that this psalm contains no prayer, no petition, no lament, or confession. Rather, it challenges us to acknowledge and worship our magnificent God. It illustrates that Yahweh is king. He is omniscient. He is all-powerful. And most importantly, he is sovereign over the very storms we encounter. And that tornado in Joplin was an illustration pointing back to the power and glory of God. So now that we have a brief overview of what we'll see in this psalm, I want to read through all 11 verses so that we can get a better picture of what's going on here. So if you would, follow along in your Bibles as I read Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Siron like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This psalm completely crushes the idea that we serve a weak or puny God. It's rather compelling that David uses this language of a fierce storm to describe God's glory and majesty because its relevancy cannot be overstated. When hurricanes form off of our coastal waters and landfall is inevitable, or thunderstorms strengthen over the plains in the Midwest, there is nothing man can do to avert what is coming. So this psalm moves from heaven to earth and back to heaven and can be broken down into three sections. The first being God's glory, 
the second being God's sovereignty, and the third being God's majesty. First, let's look at God's glory. I can say with absolute confidence that you need Psalm 29 in your life. Why can I say that? Because I need Psalm 29 in my life. And having even just a basic understanding of the human condition in a fallen world, it's easy to see why this psalm starts off the way it does. Jacob rightly pointed out last week that Psalm 28 was the end to this bracketed section of psalms starting at 23, where we see confidence, hope, trust, God's control over creation, prayer for vindication, and laments. And then we get to Psalm 29, no prayer, no petition, no lament, no confession, just praise. Verses 1 and 2, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This psalm starts off by getting our hearts to shift towards him who is worthy of glory. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and others and fixate them on God. Now David here, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is directing these words towards heavenly beings or angels. He's so filled with joy and praise that he invites the angels to join in his jubilation, pointing them to the true source of glory and strength and majesty, which is Yahweh. And if these words in verses 1 and 2 apply to the angels, how much more will they apply to us as well? These first two verses serve as a proverbial tornado siren alerting of this incoming storm. Ascribe to the Lord glory. Ascribe to the Lord strength. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. When we see God like this, it comforts us during the storms we face every day. Now the word glory here in this context means honor, admiration, dignity, splendor, reverence. Similar to what you would say of a royal monarch. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would say that we value glory. We glorify things that are quite meaningless but we're quick to throw around sayings like the greatest of all time. He's the goat, the best there ever was. There will never be another like him or her. Now some of us may not like the attention. You may not like all the eyes in the room on you for achieving something monumental, but you enjoy the acknowledgement, honor, and praise. Whether that be making the big catch in the game that seals the win. Or sinking the putt that secures first place on a four-person scramble. Maybe it's the meal you made with very basic ingredients that people rave over. Or it's the comment from a boss who all of a sudden rewards you with a compliment of praise for your work recently. There is this natural desire in us to not only thirst for, but to ascribe praise and honor for a job well done. And that raises the question, why do we need to be commanded and reminded and encouraged to recognize and extol the glory of God? And the answer is sin. 
Sin has infected our hearts so deeply that we fail to realize that our hearts are in a war for where we direct that glory. And whichever glory rules your heart will dictate the direction of your life. Sin has a way of blinding us to the glory of God. We fail every day to acknowledge the glory of God when Isaiah 6 says the whole earth is full of his glory. And I'm going to ask you what I asked myself. Did you see that glory this week? When you looked around this magnificent creation, were you filled with a deep sense of the glory of God? Were you in awe and amazement at your creator? Did you feel a sense of comfort by the strength of his hand? I pray you did, but I certainly fell short this week. Or did we just notice the busy schedules, the heaping piles of laundry, the stack of bills on the table, the mundane commutes to work, the seemingly insignificant conversations with little to no thought of the glory of God all around us. Sin has a way of replacing in our hearts the glory of God for the glory of other things. And when we realize and we remember that all other glories are pointing to the one who is the true manifestation of glory, we will see all those other things that we so eagerly strive for as meaningless. God is the main object of anything worthy of praise and adoration, and, is every, and everything is meant to point to him. He is the fulfillment of everything worthy of praise. Take anything in this world that you love, anything that you praise, anything that consumes your mind on a daily basis, and times that by a billion, and it still won't come close to the glory and majesty of God. Do the things we ascribe glory to have the strength to not only sovereignly create the storm, but also to calm it? We live in a society riddled with anxiety and depression and fear, and we see people chase things that we know that will never bring them joy. But when we ascribe glory to God, it does two things. First, it honors him, and second, it instructs us. <clears throat> no matter what the storms of life blow your way, maybe it's a phone call receiving the news of a loved one passing away, the ultrasound showing no heartbeat, hearing from the doctor that the cancer returned, a wayward child, an unfaithful spouse laid off from your job, the list is endless. But when we direct our hearts vertically and not horizontally, and the glory of who God is tsunamis into our hearts, only then will we have a joy that says, come what may. Do we know this God? Do we know <clears throat> the name of the true God and not the false gods of the day, like Baal, who is thought to be the Lord of Storms? which may be a point David was addressing here, showing how much more powerful his God was than Baal. Baal was just another Dagon put in with the temple of God and fallen flat on his face. Psalm 8.1 says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 9.10, And those who know your name 
put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Psalm 135.13, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. And since we do not read our Old Testaments like we don't have the New Testament, Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Is Jesus the one receiving the glory and honor in your life? After all, his glory is above the heavens. He is the strong tower that Christians are to sprint to when storms come. This Jesus in Mark chapter 4 said three words to a raging storm. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus has a way of calming the chaos of life when we rightfully understand who he is. Again, we honor and glorify him, and in turn, that reality instructs us. How did Jesus respond to the apostles on the boat after he calmed the storm? He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Our praise to him instructs our hearts during the storm. The more we know about God, the more we'll uh, attribute praise to him. Our hearts will overflow with worship when we rightly understand the very God we're ascribing glory and strength to. So David gets our hearts pointed in the right direction to prepare us for the storms that wreak havoc on foundations that are not solidly built on the God of glory. But when we have a firm understanding of who he is, we can have rock-solid confidence that there will be peace in the end. Moving on to point number two, God's sovereignty. Look at verses three through nine. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Siron like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. So now that David has directed our hearts from horizontal to vertical and fixated our eyes on the one true God, he continues this psalm of praise with a sovereign symphony of God's voice. This, very, this is very similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account. We see, and God said, and God said, and God said. We can't help but draw a connection back to the creation account from Psalm 29. The same voice that spoke everything into existence in Genesis is the same God here in Psalm 29 over many waters. 
The same one being ascribed power and full of majesty. The same God who created the cedars of Lebanon Lebanon is the same one who breaks them. The term the voice of the Lord is used here seven times, just as we saw the word ascribed three times in the opening two verses. And in total, we see the name Yahweh occur 18 times in all 11 verses. So David is very clear who he's addressing here. And it's this repetition that gives this psalm this poetic symphony feel. Verses 3 through 9 portrays God's voice as a strong and powerful thunderstorm. And in these seven verses, an awesome picture is being drawn for us. We have this storm brewing over the water, moving eastward, coming from the Mediterranean Sea. And making landfall north of Jerusalem in the mountains of Lebanon. And then moving south towards Mount Hermon and stretching as far north as Kadesh. If you're curious to the size of the storm when you get home, pull up a map of Israel and follow this and see what these people were allegedly looking at. In ancient Israel, there was this respectable fear of the sea. And I think we all have that to some extent. There's this concern and astonishment we have when we see large bodies of water. Even in my swimming pool, I still think sharks appear when I close my eyes underwater. But as breathtaking as they are to view from the safety of shore, we're aware of how fast things can change. The oceans and seas have roughly three million vessels laying at the bottom of their waters and an untold number of people. So verse 3, we have this storm that is the voice of the Lord speaking through the peals of thunder while showing that God is in control of the storm. And as I, said it a mi- as I said a minute ago, is it any wonder that the term, the voice of the Lord, appears seven times in this brief section? There are times when it seems that God is communicating the idea of divine completeness and perfection and wholeness by the means of the number seven, and I believe this is one of those times. The voice of the Lord speaks with absolute supremacy over the elements. And this storm is pointing, like everything else, to the fact that God is perfect. He is all-powerful. He never wavers. He never comes up short. He never grows tired. He will always be just as he always was, and we are to ascribe glory to that God. He is all-powerful and sovereign over the waters. He is all-powerful and full of majesty in verses 3 and 4. And he is all-powerful and sovereign over the mountains. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. These cedars were glorious trees. They were a sign of wealth and prosperity. Solomon used cedar wood in building his palace. They were also used in building the temple, which was almost completely paneled with cedar. It was also used in the construction of the second temple. And even today, the image of a cedar tree is found on the Lebanese national flag. And as magnificent and powerful as these trees are to signify to us, when we lose sight of the one who gave us these beautiful trees, the voice of the Lord will snap them like a matchstick. Why? Because everything marvelous points back to him. You think these trees are beautiful? Wait till you see who made them. 
You see the ocean as astonishing? Wait till you see who formed it. You see the mountains as breathtaking and magnificent. Wait till you see who shaped them. How can we look at anything around us and not see the strength and majesty and power and the glory of the one who gave all of it to us? Verse 6, even the mountains shake under the voice of the Lord. They skip like a calf and a young wild ox. The mighty Mount Everest is as steady on its feet as a newborn calf when God speaks. That measly 29,000-foot bump on our planet is nothing but a mere toy for Yahweh. May we never ascribe glory to the thing that's supposed to point us to the Creator. When we see Mount Everest, our reaction should not be, what a mighty mountain, but what a mighty God. We see these shaky mountains and thunderous majesty in a similar display of God's power and glory in Exodus 19. When God brings Israel into his presence on Mount Sinai, you don't need to turn there, but listen as I read from Exodus 19, starting in verse 16. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. We see here that God's glory and holiness has not changed from the exodus to the present. And it seemed that Israel needed constant reminders, as we do today, of the glory of God. God is sovereign over the wilderness. Verses 8 and 9, the voice of the Lord is now shaking the wilderness of Kadesh. The storm is moving southeast, it seems. It's heading towards Jerusalem, coming from the north, and it's sweeping across the entire country. The voice of the Lord causes deer to give birth and strips the forest bare. And what is the only response for such a display of power? Look at the end of verse 9. And in his temple all cry, glory. The praise that started in heaven at the beginning of the psalm with the heavenly beings has now made its way to earth. Every angel, man, woman, and child are rightfully ascribing to God glory. All of this is accomplished by the voice of the Lord, the word of God. In Genesis 1, God speaks creation into existence. He speaks the word and it happens. But the word is much more than some tone, pitch, volume, and rhythm which contributes to its distinctive quality. The word is a person. We all know it, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Everything that is detailed in verses 3 through 9 sings praise to Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over the very storms that we encounter in this world. Matthew 8, 26 and 27, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The very God causing the storm in Psalm 29 is the very God calming the storm in Matthew 8. And finally, our third point, God's majesty, verses 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. David continues this symphony of God's glory after the storm has subsided by going back to one of the most majestic and powerful acts of God over nature in the Old Testament, the flood. The definite article there, the flood. The word flood appears only here and in the flood narratives of Genesis 6 through 11. It is the ultimate and supreme example of Yahweh's glory and sovereignty over the waters and over all of creation and testifies to his position as king. Truly, he is, as Revelation 19.16 says, king of kings and lord of lords. The God who has the power to bring the flood in Genesis is the same God who can give you strength for the day and for each and every moment of our lives. Notice the phrase in verse 11, his people. It's to his people and only to his people does he promise strength. Just as he strengthened Noah and his family during the building of the ark and surviving the flood, so he will strengthen us when the waters rise and the storms come. And finally, God blesses his people with peace. What a way to end this psalm. The storm has passed. The Lord is king over all. He is completely in control. He is gracious, and his people have peace with him. The predominant effect that this psalm pursues is assurance. The God who is this great, who rules over all things, is able to bless his people with blessing. Which means that he will protect them from their enemies and use them to bless the world. Do you have this rock-solid assurance of peace with God today? Hebrews 13, 15 says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The voice that thundered in Psalm 29 is the personal voice of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter was right when he said of Jesus in John 6, 68, You have the words of eternal life. Peace with God is available to you today by the one who causes and calms the storms. If the storms are fierce and the waters are rising, run to Jesus today in faith and receive peace. So it can be said of you as well, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm and this assurance that we have that as long as our eyes are fixated on you, these storms that come are minuscule compared to the God reigning over them. 
You will give your people strength. You will give your people peace. You are sovereign over the storms. So, Father, I ask that you would be with each and every person in here today. For any soul reaching out to you that wants this peace, that wants to know the peace that surpasses all understanding, when the water seems to be creeping up past the neck and the storms just keep tumbling them, may they know the one that causes and calms the storms. We love and praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.